New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Thomas Aquinas, Dominican friar, philosopher, Catholic priest, doctor of the church, and pre-modern citizen of the 13th century, speaks timeless wisdom to a postmodern world. He encourages all spiritual warriors and activists to grow our vision and our courage. His works come from a place of goodness and acts like a mirror to our own innate goodness. He says the first and primary meaning of salvation is this, to preserve things in the good. We'll be exploring the writings and wisdom of this electrifying saint with our guest, the Reverend Dr. Matthew Fox. Matthew Fox is a wisdom elder, a theologian, an Episcopal priest, and the author of 37 books on spirituality and culture including Original Blessing and Meister Eckhart, a mystic warrior for our times. His honors include the Abbey Courage of Conscience Peace Award. Other recipients include the Dalai Lama, Mother Teresa, and Rosa Parks. He's a co-director of the Order of the Sacred Earth and co-author of the book, Order of the Sacred Earth, an intergenerational vision of love and action, and the author of Share Joy, Conversations with Thomas Aquinas on Creation of Spirituality. Also, the Tao of Thomas Aquinas, Fierce Wisdom for Hard Times. Join us for the next hour as we explore the spiritual depths, practical wisdom, and prophetic genius of Thomas Aquinas with our guest, the Reverend Dr. Matthew Fox. I'm speaking with Matthew Fox at his home in Northern California by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Matthew, welcome. Thank you, Justine. It's great to be with you again. It's great to be with you as well. I'd like to start off, uh, Thomas Aquinas, 800 years ago, led a revolution in Christian thought. Uh, what did the church fathers think of him? Well, it's true. He, he did lead a revolution, and a lot of it was turning his back on the basic philosophy that the church fathers had been uh, preaching and teaching for many centuries. And why is that? Because they were almost all 
Platonists. They uh, built their theology on uh, Platonism and Neoplatonism. And the heart of Platonism is dualism, uh, matter versus spirit, and so forth. Aquinas deliberately chose to step out of the Platonic tradition, and he chose Aristotle as his favorite philosopher. Now, Aristotle uh, was new in the West. In fact, he'd been brought in by Islam. It was the Muslims who translated Aristotle into Latin, both in southern Spain and in Baghdad. And that's how Aristotle got into Europe, through Spain and through the Muslim scholarship. So Aquinas totally allied with Aristotle. And, and for example, he wrote 12 books on Aristotle, commentaries on 12 of Aristotle's different books. And he didn't write one book on Plato or one book on, on Augustine. Now, he knew these thinkers and he incorporated them here and there. But his whole worldview was um, to, to be scientific. And that's what he loved about Aristotle. And he says the reason he preferred Aristotle to Plato is that Aristotle does not denigrate matter. And so it was this non-dualism that so attracted Aquinas and makes him so important today because he really is a feminist, a proto-feminist for that reason, because as Rosemary Ruth, or the great feminist theologian says, the heart of feminist philosophy is non-dualism. And so Aquinas steps away from centuries of misogyny and dualism and a putting down of the body and a, a putting down of matter. Uh, he steps away from all that and finds an integrative way to to um, to balance matter and spirit. For example, he says the relationship of body and soul is a, a communio admirabilis, a wonderful communion, a wonderful communion. In contrast, Augustine, centuries earlier, had said uh, the soul makes war with the body. That's a quote. That's not Aquinas' teaching at all. Aquinas... Uh, stands for non-dualism, and he paid a real price for it. He was um, he was um, condemned just uh, shortly after he died, and he was condemned at times during his lifetime as well, and mostly around this very topic, what he called the consubstantiality of body and soul, of matter and spirit. In other words, the non-dualism of the two. This got him in a lot of hot water. So in, in dualism... Isn't it important that for, let's say, the patriarchy or for the church fathers who were kind of holding up the old feudal system, uh, dualism was important in that endeavor? Well, yes. And remember that the, the feudal system and the monastic system uh, were running things for centuries in the West, and it was not all negative by any means. I mean, the monastic system helped to keep scholarship alive and agriculture and uh, learning and all the rest, and certainly the arts like music. But um, the feudal system was running out of steam in the 12th century, and the main reason it, it lost its power was actually climate change. That uh, after centuries of very cold um, weather, uh, Europe warmed up because the the uh, currents shifted in the Atlantic Ocean, 
And so with the warming of the weather in the 12th century, uh, the growing season became longer and families became larger. And there was no longer work for a lot of the young people because the feudal system was so restricted and it didn't adapt. And so uh, there really was a lot of social upheaval and uh, a lot of young people fled this, this system, especially serfs, the, the poorer young people, and they swarmed into the towns, which overnight became cities. Uh, but people very strongly by young, young people, young adults. And um, this was a movement that inspired Francis of Assisi in the late 12th century to start his kind of fraternity and sorority. Um, and it also inspired St. Dominic, who began the Dominican order. And um, these were direct rejections of the monastic system and its alliance with the political economic system of the feudal uh, system. And so it was very revolutionary, very controversial. And in Aquinas' day, uh, he was a second generation of Dominican. He was born in 1225, um, lived to 1274. Um, it was still very controversial to belong to one of these new orders. And Aquinas actually wrote him and to defend the new orders. Uh, but a lot of religious conservatives at the time, first of all, they didn't want Aristotle because Aristotle was a pagan and a scientist and who needs science? That's rather a familiar refrain in today's fundamentalism too. Nothing's changed, I guess. But also they resisted what the new orders represented, which was to be with the poor and to be with the people in the new cities, um, not part of the feudal system, the privileges of the previous monastic feudal alliance. So from that point of view, too, Aquinas was very prophetic and out front, and, um, and he, he did a lot of battle. And and it's true that the the Muslims at that time were the leaders in scientific endeavor. I mean, they were way ahead of the curve, weren't they? Absolutely. Um, they they had the great universities. Um, the West, Europe, just picked up on that idea of a university from the Muslims in the late 12th century. And uh, of course, the University of Paris was the first university. And uh, Aquinas uh, went there, and he taught there. So was that kind of like the Berkeley of its day, yeah. so to speak? Well, it was, except it was the first one in the whole European world. So it was it was the truly uh, a draw. In fact, you've heard of the Latin Quarter in Paris. The reason it's called the Latin Quarter is that the professors all taught in Latin, and why? Because there were students from all over the world, Hungary and Italy and England and Ireland, and they had to have a common language. And that language was Latin, although medieval Latin. And of course, Aquinas wrote in that himself and spoke it. Uh, it was very simple Latin. It was not Ciceronian Latin or Augustine's uh, Latin. It was very simple Latin because uh, it had to bring together so many young people uh, from from all over the world, you know, with their own languages and, and dialects that they were bringing uh, to their education. So, what was it, what was going on at that time could be compared eight hundred years ago to what we're going through today, and this is why his work is so important to us right now. I think. Yes, I think there's a lot of parallels. Um, 
that the, the economic political system of the time was dying and thoughtful people recognized it. And so there's this tremendous invitation to creativity and to give birth to new concepts of religion, education, uh, and with it, uh, politics and economics. And, and also um, relationships that the, the, the male and the female, for example, in many of these communes, um, they were very conscious of gender uh, power. And some of them actually had a rule where a male would rule, would, would head the group for six months, and then a female would head it for six months. So there was this conscious uh, awareness to, uh, to balance that masculine and feminine energy. Now, unfortunately, this didn't last for too long, <laughs> but at least it was an effort and, uh, and a serious one. And I think it's one reason why Francis of Assisi um, established a sister's group, a women's group, through his friend Claire. Uh, she founded the, the female Franciscans, and he wanted the female Franciscans to be able to uh, preach uh, just like his brothers. But unfortunately, the, the Vatican intervened and said that the women could not preach, and they had to live contemplative lives. In other words, be locked up. <laughs> and Yes. So that was a disappointment to both Claire and Francis. I want to remind our listeners I'm here with Father Matthew Fox, and he's the author of The Tao of Thomas Aquinas, Fierce Wisdom for Hard Times. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, matthewfox.org, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Father Matthew Fox, and he's the author of The Tao of Thomas Aquinas, Fierce Wisdom for Hard Times. And we're, we're talking about how this saint who lived 800 years ago is relevant to these times. And one of the things that is emphasized in his writings, as you point out, is the emotion of joy, or joy is a natural uh, part of our spirituality and how uh, Aquinas focused more on the Beatitudes than on redemption or salvation. Matthew, can you speak on that? Yes. Aquinas says, joy is a human's noblest act. 
Joy is a human's noblest act. That's really a stunning statement because if this is the case, if he's right, then you'd think it might be appropriate to build our education around joy. And with it, our, our vocations, our work worlds, and ultimately our politics and economics. You know, why shouldn't we strive for our noblest act and incarnate that instead of um, creating systems, work systems and educational systems that are based more on an original sin ideology, namely that you have to beat people up for them to learn, for example, and call it education. I mean, there's a lot of, I know, there's a lot of sadomasochism in academia, and there's a lot of unhappiness also. And uh, Aquinas says, just that one sentence from Aquinas, we turn the whole thing inside out. And, uh, and then we could explore what joy is all about. And of course, this is what I think the, the deep spiritual traditions of the world uh, strive for. I think that this is why uh, meditation is so useful for so many people, to be able to, to empty the mind and including one's memories of, of, of suffering or of uh, wounds and so forth, uh, so that it could be more fully present. And, uh, and the same with the future, to empty our minds of fear and, um, and of despair and to be more uh, present to the beauty and the glory of our existence. And this is what Aquinas emphasizes so much. He's so creation-centered that he talks often about how um, creation itself is a source of revelation. For example, he says, revelation comes in two volumes, nature and the Bible. Well, that really puts the temptation to Bibleolatry uh, on the shelf because Aquinas is saying that we are being revealed on a daily basis. Uh, divinity reveals itself to us through nature, through creation. And this is one more reason why he loves science so much. He says, a mistake about creation results in a mistake about God. Well, if you turn that around, an insight about creation would give us insight about divinity. So he talks often about how meditating on creation, meditating on nature, is a marvelous way to encounter the divine and, um, and be joyful, to learn to be joyful. And of course, um, one of his other famous lines about joy, I picked up on for the title of my previous book on Aquinas, Sheer Joy, because Aquinas says, sheer joy is God's, and this demands companionship. In other words, for him, he's answered the question that science is asking today, why does the universe exist at all? And his answer is, for the sake of joy, for the divine joy and for our own. Because when we're joyful, we want to share it. You don't keep it to yourself. You want to celebrate, share it with others. And that's his thesis, that divinity itself wanted to share the joy of, of divinity. Uh, and that's why the rest of us exist and to share it with one another. So again, those few observations about joy by Aquinas, they just uh, okay, they turn our civilization inside out. They would turn our civilization inside out. And, um, and what a beautiful shift that would be. What a beautiful shift. So I took that phrase, sheer joy, as a title of my previous book on Aquinas, my, my big book called Sheer Joy, Conversations with Thomas Aquinas on creation spirituality. 
Because I think that line, too, about sheer joy of God is so stunning and powerful and remarkable and important. One of the things that joy does is that it wants companionship, that when we're in joy, it's a natural tendency to share it with others. Exactly. It's exactly what Aquinas is saying, right? That it's, uh, we're social animals, as Aristotle taught, and as Aquinas repeats, and uh, joy is at the heart of it. We, we want to share the joy. Of course, we also share our, our pain and suffering, but you want to wrap it in the joy. The via positiva has to be developed before you can really get over denial and enter into the, the depths of the pain and suffering as well. And uh, just like what we're going through now with the coronavirus um, pandemic, that uh, we, we have to, in, in difficult times and hard times, you have to hang on to the goodness of creation, the joy of existence, um, in order to see you through the hard times. And um, otherwise, you do yield to despair or to um, self-pity. Neither of which helps you. Now, another dimension to Aquinas's work and thinking that really fits today's situation is his his reliance on science. You know, when he says a mistake about nature is also a mistake about God, we have the science today to ultimately deal with coronavirus. Obviously, in the Middle Ages, like a century after Aquinas, you had the Black Plague. And, of course, they had no science to deal with. And so a lot of crazy religion came up and, and, and said, oh, it's about God punishing us for our sins and all that. And as Thomas Berry says, the Black Plague killed creation spirituality in the West. And the whole culture went pessimistic for hundreds of years, for centuries, uh, because of the Black Plague. But Aquinas would not, would not hold for something like that because he was so uh, committed and convinced of the goodness of creation. He talks often, he uses the phrase original goodness, original goodness many times. And of course, I've, I created the phrase original blessing, which got the patriarchal Vatican very upset. But uh, in fact, it's the same phrase as original goodness, because blessing is a theological word for goodness. But the point is, if we don't hang on to that original goodness, such as science tells us today, 13.8 billion years brought us here, the work of the universe, why isn't that a blessing and a good thing? If we don't hang on to that in tough times, well, then we're just set up, setting ourselves up for failure, for despair, uh, for, um, for pity. That just reminds me, when you talk about that quote from Thomas Berry um, and about the Black Plague and how it changed society for a long time, I'm thinking, well, here we are sheltering in place and here, and and I, I just wonder what kind of effect this is going to have on society as we come out of this pandemic uh, in, in a new way with each other. Do you have any thoughts on that, Matthew? Well, I certainly hope... Um that it sobers us up in the sense that um, we see life more clearly. And of course, this is what uh, a retreat uh, is meant to do. And I think we should be looking at this time of withdrawing as a kind of retreat, a cleansing of our perceptions. And we should 
cease taking for granted. Cease taking for granted the beauty and the health of the planet. Because there is this close link between coronavirus and, um, and climate change. And I would hope that we come out of this um, withdrawal uh, with a much deeper appreciation for creation, uh, for the world we've been born into. And, and therefore, we'll be so motivated that we'll be able to undergo those lessons, such as a simpler lifestyles and eating less meat and, of course, generating energy through um, non-fossil fuels and through renewable and sustainable ways and so forth. Notice, for example, how everyone's reporting the great cities of the world are beautiful again. You can see the sky, the air is clean, and the health. I mean, there are actually studies that show that more people die every day of a bad air in our cities around the world, not just America, than are dying of coronavirus around the world. So, I mean, let's, I hope we come out of this with some things in perspective again. And again, this is where some of the Aquinas is so important because he stands up for creation. He stands up for the goodness. And like you started out, and I love that quote you chose from him. He, his definition of redemption is not about getting to heaven or staying out of hell. His definition is preserving things in the good. Wow, if we just came out of this um, coronavirus sheltering with that in our minds. Let's set out to preserve things in the good. And you know, there's a direct relationship between the animals that are giving us these viruses, coronaviruses, and the climate change crisis. Because we have ripped other species of their habitats so thoroughly that we are coming more and more closely in touch with these wild um, species. And yes, they have the capacity to, to dispose uh, uh, their germs onto us, their viruses onto us. And there's going to be more of these things happening, not less, be precisely because of how we've been treating the earth and in the process treating ourselves. So I think there are all these tremendous lessons to learn, and we need a new economics, a new politics, a new, new attitude to our religion and spirituality, even to art and, and media, if we're going to survive on this planet. So I'm hoping that this, this um, crisis we're in now uh, will wake us up to the fact that all of us are going to have to sacrifice, just as we've been sacrificing at this time by being away from work and all that, we're going to have to sacrifice. That is, shift our, our lifestyles. Uh, to be more in tune with with what Mother Earth requires, it's it's that simple. I I saw a YouTube that just lifted my heart so much. It's a YouTube from uh, a compilation from all over the world showing all of these wild animals just playing in the streets like uh, <laughs> uh, rhinoceroses, you know, running down the road, or or kangaroos, <laughs> or penguins, or mountain lions uh and it just and there's no people around <laughs> and they're just like uh these animals are just having a heyday and it, I, somehow it just really lifted my heart to see this <laughs> that's a beautiful story that's a beautiful story absolutely and again i hope it's a reminder 
years ago, a um, a uh, shaman told me about 25 years ago that the four-legged ones are wor very worried about us two-legged ones, and they're having conferences to talk about us. And then a few years ago, I ran into the same shaman. I said, is this still happening? Are the four-legged ones having conferences to talk about us? He said, they are, but they're not talking about us anymore. They are shouting about <laughs> us. There you go. I'm here with Father Matthew Fox, and he's the author of The Tao of Thomas Aquinas, Fierce Wisdom for Hard Times. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Father Matthew Fox, who is the author of The Tao of Thomas Aquinas, Fierce Wisdom for Hard Times. We've been talking about joy, and one of the things that popped out for me, for those people who are activists and standing up for justice for uh, oppressed people and oppressive, oppressive systems and so forth, and uh, it says that justice exists for the sake of joy, that joy is fundamental. That Can you say something about that? That really struck me that justice isn't something of itself. What we're really going for is joy. Can you help us unpack that? Sure. Um, justice uh, makes it possible there are more people who can experience joy in their lives. That's the purpose of justice. That um, with a, a balance, some kind of fair balance between forces in a culture um, and between the human and other beings, that joy then can flow. Because joy is, is a natural state. And not just for humans, but I think for all the beings. I mean, the birds that sing in the morning. I, I mean, I I presume they're, they're singing about their joy. They're happy to be here. And I know my dog is happy to be here. And I think the trees are happy to be here. I mean, I think most beings are happy to be here. It's only the humans who get off track and and end up feeling sorry for ourselves and projecting on others and all of it. And of course, telling us that our that that God hates us and our sins are selling, sending us to hell or something. I, mean, I don't think other animals are worried about that. So there's a wonderful line, too, from Aquinas. And each chapter, as you know, in this book is a sentence from Aquinas. So here's a one that links to your question. He says, the vision of God is arrived at through justice. I love that. The vision of God is arrived at through justice. So in other words, the work of justice. And really, I, as I said early in the in the book, I, I wrote this book for activists especially, because to me, uh, this is a very short book, but it's a very succinct and substantive book because Aquinas is just a major uh, mind and heart in the history of, of Western culture, just one of the greatest geniuses ever. And um, 
he says that the vision of God is arrived at through justice. So vision of God does not just come from meditation or from sitting on a cushion or even from being silent, although all that is useful. Uh, it also comes from working for justice. And, and the vision of God carries you through that work, and including it may, the work may end you up in jail or something if you're protesting. But there too, as Dr. Martin Luther King demonstrated and wrote about, there too the, the Holy Spirit uh, speaks to us. And so um, I just think that this, just that one sentence again from Aquinas just shift our whole awareness that it's not just contemplation and action, it's action and contemplation. Uh, they both feed each other. And Aquinas was very strong on that. And of course, the, the Dominican order was because their, their motto was about a truth and sharing the fruits of contemplation with others. So contemplation is not just for oneself, it is for others. And in what direction? The direction of joy, to bring joy to others, to awaken the joy that's intrinsic in all of us. There was, there was a story you told about a young uh, activist zealot who did all sorts of things like get in front of bulldozers. He got arrested many, many times. And he came to, I think, one of your cosmic masses and he did that circle dancing with others, and it changed the, his whole attitude about activism. Do, do you recall that young man? Yes. Uh, it actually wasn't a cosmic mass, but a, uh, a workshop I did but on the cosmic Christ, and I did circle dancing. And he told me afterwards that circle dancing, well, he said, I'm a zealot who goes to jail all the time and lies down in front of of uh, bulldozers to save the forest, he said, that dancing was the most radical thing I've ever done in my life. And I want to take it back to my fellow zealots in the woods, he said. When I ran into him two years later, he said that he did that. And in circle dancing, he says, their whole consciousness changed because they were operating out of a us versus them consciousness. And uh, they knew all their enemies, supposedly, but he said after they started doing circle dances, they they got softer. They loosened up a little. They realized, for example, the hunters were not their enemies, as they had previously thought, because hunters were very aware that the game were disappearing in the woods. So they were allies. And so he was learning a more grown-up politics, that grown-up politics is not about I'm right and you're wrong. Uh, it's not even about I've got the power and you don't. Grown-up politics is about creating allies, about what is it we experience together in terms of injustice that we can do something about. And so they expanded, he and his fellow zealots in the woods, expanded their, their uh, circle of resistance uh, by including um, uh, hunters and others. But that happened because their hearts loosened up in the circle dances. So I think that's a beautiful story. I'm glad you brought it up because it shows the importance of the heart, bringing the heart to work of justice. And, you know, Aquinas says this amazing a sentence which became one of the chapters in the book when he says, the proper objects of the heart are truth and justice. The heart, you know, we think of truth as in the head or the brain or something. No, for Aquinas, 
as for the Jewish tradition, uh, the heart lies, uh, the intellect lies in the heart. And so we all have this passion for truth. We want to know truth. And that's why lies are such an affront to not just our minds, but our hearts. And as he says, justice too lies in the heart, that we're born with a yearning for justice. The justice, after all, is a another word for compassion. And you you're mentioned in the book the scientific uh, principle that uh, how more messages go from the heart to the brain than from the brain to the heart. Yes, that's a, a new finding in science. You know, and this whole movement called heart math, for example, is discovering how, um, what can I say, how, how full of mind <laughs> the heart is. And um, uh, they've also found, you know, that our, our skin uh, does its own processing and thinking. And it is, in fact, an extension of our ears. Uh, so, I mean, there's just a lot more going on in the body than we were taught in the modern era. And as many, many people still think that, um, that the soul is in the, in the head or that, that the mind is in the brain, uh, it isn't. It's much bigger than that. It's in uh, so many organs of the body and it's beyond our bodies as well when we dream and when we vision. So what you're saying, and I think uh, you mentioned this in Aquinas's writings too, is that praise of God is an embodied sort of thing. That it's it's the body uh, rather than this kind of amorphous spirit is something really important. And and the church fathers weren't very happy about this. <laughs> That's true, and that's part of non-dualism. That's kind of part of the, the logic of Aquinas' starting point, that uh, matter and spirit and body and soul are work together as partners. And uh, yes, this this is a, a contradiction, really, of that attitude that this life doesn't count so much. It's about to another place called heaven or something, uh, or that... Um, to do so, you have to escape your body. But that was not Aquinas' approach at all. He said that all knowledge for humans comes to the senses. So we should honor the senses. And, um, of course, it doesn't stop with the senses. Uh, we have this tremendous intellect, this tremendous creativity and imagination, but we have to steer it and put it to good use. But um, he, was, he was a champion of, of artists. For example, he often calls God the artist of artists, the artist of artists. It's one of his favorite names for God. He does it often. But he also says the same spirit that hovered over the waters at the beginning of creation hovers over the mind of the artist at work. So in today's science, we say, well, the spirit that hovered over the fireball, the beginning of creation, hovers over the mind of the, of the person uh, at work. And so this is a tremendous affirmation of the work of the artist, that the via creative, that the, the Holy Spirit is working still through us, the very spirit that launched and, and the entire universe. So again, a tremendous affirmation of human creativity and art and the artist 
that we all are the artist in all of us. And I know in your work, you really uh, encourage people in their art forms. Uh, and it, you, it's like very important, an important part of our, our lives and, and our expression. Well, absolutely. And I think we should, again, the medieval understanding of art was very indigenous. That art was not something you did because you had a special genius for painting or something. It's something we all do all day long. And um, just think of your your work, for example, as a as a journalist um, and interviewing people and with the radio and all that. Um, that's an art form. And uh, um, you know, the raising of children is an art form. As I say, there's no science really that <laughs> gives you the answers. It's an art, and you have several children. They all have very different personalities. You got to raise them a little bit differently, and so forth. It's 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 the artist in us that does the adjusting and 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 develops a resilience and the, the creativity to uh, well to to get through life and to offer something back. And I think Aquinas was very attuned to this. Um, for example, he talks about the art of building a ship and the art of horseback riding. And, and so he had this pre-modern, this indigenous understanding that, that art is, is common to everything we do. You know, many Native American languages do not have the word art in it. Why not? Because they take it for granted. That every, we're, always, we're, always, we're here to, to make beauty, they say. So you don't need a special word for that. That's why we're here. It's obvious. That's what it means to be a human. You're here to be an artist, to make beauty. And to share your, you know, one uh, Native American, David Paladin, said to me one day, I'm sick and tired of hearing white people tell me they're not artists. If you can talk, you're an artist. Because you're translating your experiences into language, and that's art. So get over it. I'm here with Father... Matthew Fox, and he's the author of The Tao of Thomas Aquinas, Fierce Wisdom for Hard Times. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, matthewfox.org, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Father Matthew Fox, and he's the author of The Tao of Thomas Aquinas, Fierce Wisdom for Hard Times. And we're talking about art, and I'm reminded 
Matthew, that I was in Toronto, as, as was you, at the last Parliament of World Religions. And um, me and my circle sisters took some time out, and we went to a special place in Toronto that was a district that was filled with graffiti. And it was the most beautiful artwork on every single building and surface you could imagine. And it was about social justice. It was about nature. It was about all sorts of things. And it was pretty much done by many young people. I was so impressed. Uh, we don't often think of graffiti as something that is so beautiful, uh, but it surely was a statement of great art. So I'm not sure if you were able to see that or not. It's well, a beautiful story. I didn't see it, but I like the story. And um, of course, graffiti is another art form, like rap and and uh, DJing and VJing that have been born in our lifetimes in this postmodern time. And it's a wonderful thing that these new art forms are being being birthed. And um, that's one thing we try to do with our cosmic mass. And we had one there, and we celebrated one at the the Toronto uh, World Parliament. Um, we try to bring in these new art forms, and um, and they're very rich and powerful. And of course, it's the language for young people, so they're very home with it. Yes. But when you mentioned the uh, World Parliament, I thought you might bring in the whole theme of of deep ecumenism or interfaith, because Aquinas too was very upfront on that, and and quite unique in his time. We kind of imagine that you know interfaith is this thing that's happened in the late 20th century or something but he has this amazing statement where he says every truth without exceptions and whoever may utter it is from the holy spirit so i mean this just blesses every religious tradition in every culture and he says that he said he says every culture has had its prophets he says and then again he says revelation has been made to many pagans the old pagan virtues were from god so here he's 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 endorsing pagan wisdom. And of course, Aristotle was a pagan, and that's part of his thinking. See, he was attacked mercilessly for taking on Aristotle because Aristotle was uh, a pagan, because he was a scientist, because he came through Islam. He had three strikes against him, and, and Aquinas embraced him his entire life long, built his whole theology on him. So I think that too is part of of Aquinas' consciousness that is so real and ripe for today, that truth is found everywhere, and wherever there's truth, there's the Holy Spirit. So if that isn't the opening doors wide for interfaith and deep ecumenism, I, I don't know what is. Exactly. Matthew, I know that there's a, a word, a phrase that means a lot to you, and, and you mentioned this in the book, and it's called magnanimity mm. and i i i want you to tell us why why is that an important concept to you and to uh thomas aquinas well aquinas builds his ethics not on commandments but on virtues and again he gets this from aristotle and i think it's wonderful because again it's so ecumenical because uh the virtue of courage is not a christian thing or a Muslim thing or an atheist thing. It's a human thing. You either got it and develop it or you don't. And of course, the same is true of magnanimity, which Aquinas is very, very big on the uh, virtue of magnanimity, which in fact, he says is part of the virtue of fortitude or courage. 
Now, magnanimity is from two Latin words, mania anima, big soul. And so he says that people who have magnanimity do not spend a lot of time trying to impress other people. <laughs> um, and they don't spend a lot of time with critics, whether positive or negative critics. Uh, people who project on you something positive or people who project on you something negative. He says, no, you just keep going. This reminds you of Rabbi Heschel, who, who once said that he didn't have time in his life to respond to all the, the Jewish people of his tradition who complained that he was marching with King at Selma. He didn't have time. And that's magnanimity, that you, you grow your soul in the context of your commitment to truth and justice and what you're what you're about. So uh, he goes, Aquinas goes on and on about magnanimity, and so you can just sense his uh, passion for it. And I think, I think he had to be convincing himself that during the hard times, and he had plenty of hard times. I mean, there are times when the King of France had to call out his troops to surround the convent where Aquinas was living because parish priests were so threatened by his teaching that they they would preach to their congregation to go get that guy. He's a he's a lover of science and a lover of the pagans and Aristotle. And so they'd surround his his convent and start hollering and everything. So I mean Aquinas was, you know, we think of him as some great intellectual, maybe sitting in an ivory tower, but there weren't ivory towers at that time, the second generation of University of Paris. And he was vulnerable. And so I think that um the battles that he went through helped to carve in him a magnanimous soul. And I think that that is a big reason why he wrote about magnanimity in such a big way um, and so frequently. And he says it, it takes magnanimity to fight for the common good, uh, to, um, to search for truth and tell it. And he says uh, to create good worship. He says all that takes magnanimity in the fight for justice, he says, the struggle for justice. So uh, that just uh, takes me in this fight for the struggle for justice, the phrase, uh, one of the chapters and quotes from uh, Aquinas is, a trustworthy person is angry at the right people for the right reasons, expresses it in the appropriate manner and for the appropriate length of time. So he speaks directly about anger. And what is his advice about anger? He's saying it's, anger is okay, but he qualifies it. Sure. Well, first of all, he's saying don't sit on it. That anger, you see, is a, um, a physiological and emotional response to injustice, he said. And so it's not a bad thing at all. But you don't want it to run away with you. Um, you want to be able to steer it and not have it run away with you. And so that's why he he puts those caveats on it. He says, uh, be angry at the right people for the right reasons, express it in the appropriate manner and for the appropriate length of time. So in other words, you don't build your whole life on anger and, um, and you do learn to let go of it. Otherwise, he points out uh, in another place, he says that bitterness comes from holding anger in a long time. Bitterness comes from holding anger in a long time. One more reason why you find want to find an appropriate outlet for your anger. And, of course, working for justice. And also um, art um, can be an outlet for anger, including music that arouses a sense of, of passion for justice uh, for others and so forth. 
So there are many ways in which we can steer our anger appropriately. But this is very different from the dualists who would say anger is always wrong. Like Augustine said, anger is a, is a capital sin. No, it isn't. Not for Augustine. In fact, Aquinas says nothing great happens without anger. Why? Because anger is that force in us that gets you through tough times. But again, you want to deal with it appropriately. And that's why he puts those, those guardrails on it, if you will. So I think it's brilliant. It's excellent psychology. You know, when he's saying that uh, you deal with anger uh, for the right reasons, he, he's really hinting at today's psychology of subconscious, unconscious projection. That would not be a right reason, you see. You may be projecting on some authority figure because you had a bad relationship with your father or something like that. So, I mean, he's kind of clearing the, the road for that kind of analysis that we have subconscious motivations sometimes, and we should look clearly at them before we start projecting on people. So um, it's a brilliant analysis and statement, and I'm, I'm glad you picked up on that because all the prophets are angry. It's what you do with the anger. Gandhi was, I think, was pretty pissed off that the British Empire had had invaded his country, but he figured out a way, a strategy to get rid of them without killing anybody. It's really quite a miraculous a historical achievement. And Dr. King was, I'm sure, plenty angry at the the segregation of the South and the rest. But he, he borrowing from Gandhi, of course, found ways to 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 channel that anger in effectiveness, into effectiveness. So it's not just about ranting, raving, or uh, getting um, beat up by powers that are greater than yourself. So uh, there are strategies. The the intellect has to be brought, brought into the battle for justice. It's not just about uh, emotion. It's also about uh, strategy. Yes, definitely. Thank you. Thank you for that. And I love the word effectiveness. And that's something that we can qualify any of our actions with. Is it being effective? Is it drawing allies to us? Uh, which uh, you speak about. Uh, we have about 30 seconds left. Is there anything you want to comment on? Well, I've certainly enjoyed this discussion. And as usual, you've done your homework and uh, you've had some wonderful questions. And I just want to say that I think Aquinas um, is a, um, a warrior and a fierce thinker, a substantive thinker for our time. And this book, as I say, is a short book deliberately to be a handbook, a handbook for uh, and a guide for spiritual activists in particular. I don't think you can do any better than to have someone of Aquinas' stature in your corner, in your heart, and in your mind. Take this book to jail with you when uh, you stand up to protest uh, extinction, when you rebel against extinction, not only our own, but that of so many other wonderful species that we're saving, that we're sharing the planet with. Thank you so much, Matthew, for being with us today on New Dimensions. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Father Matthew Fox. He's the author of The Tao of Thomas Aquinas, Fierce Wisdom for Hard Times. And to be in touch with him, you can go to his website, matthewfox.org. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3703. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners.
You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.